If you have your Bibles, would you please turn to the book of Revelation? I'm going to read in just a moment from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. A word of explanation with regards to where I am in the text. I have uh, skipped over the uh, letter of the church to Sardis, and that is because uh, we had uh, some challenges in our, our, uh, our schedules. A couple of weeks ago, I missed a couple of flights trying to get home on a Sunday afternoon. And uh, so Pastor Paul will be preaching on the church, uh, the letter to the church in Sardis, uh, and we will do that the first weekend in September. The church in Philadelphia was a healthy church. There is no strong word of correction or rebuke to this church. Even healthy churches need encouragement. Churches that are faithful, churches that have been true to God's name, need encouragement. In other words, they need some way to be replenished. Endurance is not its own food. You don't continue to endure by patting yourself on the back saying, isn't my endurance really nice? There's something that is outside of that endurance that gives us the ability to endure. So it's not enduring that makes us endure. This letter is a word of encouragement to a church that is enduring. And it, and it, and it gives them uh, uh, the, the resource that is necessary for endurance. As I read the text, I'm going to uh, comment on a lot of the references that there are to biblical history. Uh, please don't find that a distraction. And I, th- I believe it's uh, very significant and important and able to be able to understand uh, what the Apostle John understood uh, this letter to mean for this particular church. Please keep in mind that this is a pastoral letter that John is on the island of Patmos, and the reason that he has given the vision to the churches that are come from Christ is in order that they would be able to endure, in order that they would be able to persevere. How good of a pastor would he be if he uh, construed some words to send to a church that he thought, hmm, this is, this is really, I don't think they'll be able to understand this, but, but this is really interesting. They might need scholars and they might need uh, special gurus and prophets to be able to figure out what this message means, but, but I think it's really neat. No. The goal and the purpose of a pastor who wants to encourage a church to persevere is to make things plain. And the reason that John uses the vocabulary that he does both in the, in, in the letters to the churches and later in the visions to the churches is not to obscure the message, but to make the message plain. And what was common between uh, the Apostle John and the churches was biblical history. Okay, so that's why I go slowly through the text and I, and I, and I point out to us that, that this, this is what the people and John had in common an understanding of, of the biblical history in order to understand the message. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write. I mentioned last week that that whole idea of an angel, if you were to read through the book of Exodus and Numbers, you would see over and over again that what that means is simply that God is dealing directly with these people. God is having dealings with them uh, uniquely and directly. That's what the word angel means. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the keys of David. And I don't need to 
point out what is obvious, that David is a key Old Testament figure of God's anointing, God's authority, and the Messiah, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. That's a quote from Isaiah 22, 22, where God removed a, 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 a bad servant in the house of Judah and gave the keys of David to a man named Heliakim. Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. That phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 45. It was first spoken to uh, a pagan king by the name of Cyrus, who God said to him, I set before you an open door. I think the message would be immediately understandable because they knew the history of what Cyrus, what God enabled Cyrus to do. I know that you have little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. There's the persevering church. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Boy, there's, there's a lot of Old Testament in that. Jeremiah 31, uh, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Do you remember the dreams of Joseph? Genesis chapter 35, do you remember what Joseph dreamed? He dreamed that, that, that his brothers would all be bowing down to him. And do you remember the reality of those dreams coming true in Genesis chapter 45 when his brothers came down into Egypt and they bowed down to Joseph? Tremendous biblical history that is uh, alluded to in these verses that would have tremendous meaning for the church and understanding what, God pur- what God's purposes are for them. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the, aisle, at the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. That little phrase, those who dwell on the earth, is from Psalm, chapter, Psalm number 10, verse 19, where God speaks of those who, without Uh, faithfulness and justice bring terror as dwellers on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is vocabulary of the sanctuary out of the books of Exodus and Leviticus. Uh, There's uh, vocabulary from the sanctuary and from the temple all through the book of Revelation. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. This is what God did for Israel, do you remember? Wrote on him, on them his name. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where the Shekinah glory of God dwelt. It's where God uh, had covenantal dealings with his people and he came down and he dwelt there as their king, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that's the text. What I believe the main point to the church is, as I said, it's, it's a word about Christian endurance. The message of the book of Revelation is not sufficiently uh, 
hold when we say that it's about Christ winning. That's true, but it's insufficient. If Christ went won all by himself, what, what good would that do us? What point would there be in the revelation of all of God's works if it were not true what this, what this book is about? It's about the fact that Christ and his people win. That's the point. It is a, it is, it is a letter for Christian endurance, and that does not come from their own strength. He says you have little power. You have little of your own strength. But rather it comes from the Spirit of God who speaks. You know, the, the, one of the, the most consistent phrases through all of the letters to the seven churches is that phrase about the Spirit. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you're not hearing what the Spirit says, if your ears are not healed to hear the Word of God, you're not persevering. And what the Spirit says to healed ears are words about Christ. And the words about Christ here are, the, are is this, that he is of David, that he is the true Messiah. He is the Holy One. That means he's unchanging. He is the true one. That means that he's the real one. And all of the promises that were given to Israel through David belong to Jesus. That's what the Spirit says to ears who will hear it in order that we would see Jesus and be able to persevere, to endure. And what we are to understand by the Spirit about Jesus being the Messiah is that all of God's blessings, all of the things that the synagogue would understand belong to them, who Jesus has some very stern words for here. They're liars, and it's actually the place where Satan is worshipped. But all of those things which in, in the synagogue would be understood to, to, to belong to them for, for their encouragement, for the encouragement of Israel and all of God's covenant dealings with Israel, the message of this letter is to say that in Christ, all of those things belong to you, church, not to the synagogue. That's, that's, that's the simple message. It's a, it's a stunning message of role reversal. Ever experienced role reversal? You're experiencing role reversal. All of a sudden, I'm the responsible one. Joseph was a story of role reversal. You bow down to us, us brothers, we've got all the power in the world. We've got enough power over you to throw you into a pit and send you to Egypt as a slave. And role reversal is that those brothers in the future bowed down to, to Joseph. So there are, are, are two places of worship in, in, in the city of Philadelphia, which is in modern-day Turkey, where Josh and Jamie live. There are two places of, of worship in this place. One was a synagogue, and one was a church. And the, the question that, that this vision determines is who are the people of God? 
all of the vocabulary that is, is, is through the text, and that's why I went slowly through it to, to, to show you uh, so much of the Old Testament history that, that, that is there, all of the vocabulary in the letter, words like, like, well, Jews, obviously, but the words that identified with the Jews to, to make them understand their special relationship to God, words like David, these stories about bowing down, the place of the temple, uh, the city of Jerusalem. All, all of these big concept ideas about what it would be like in the synagogue, worshiping God and their understanding of, of what is it that God has done with us. What are the covenant dealings that God has had with us? It's like going through the synagogue. You know, maybe they had these little plaques on the wall that Jeremiah 31, that I have loved you with an everlasting love and, 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 and all going through the synagogue and just, and just taking everything that, that is there. That's not yours anymore. That's not yours anymore. That's not yours anymore. And that's not yours anymore. And taking it across the street to the church and saying, all of this belongs to you. My covenant dealings are with you. It's a, it, it's a stunning and, and shocking and, and very stern message of role reversal. But the Apostle Paul says something very similar in Galatians chapter 3. He says to the church, the Gentile church, he says, you're the offspring of Abraham, heirs of the promise. And there's, there's, there must be at least a dozen I wills in this particular passage. And those are, those are the great... Those are the great things about, about being a, a Jew, about being an Israelite, about being attached to all of these Old Testament stories, all of these divine I shalls on behalf of his people. And all of the divine I will, I will do this, I will do, I've set an open door, I will make you a pillar, all of those things now are said on behalf of God's people, the church. It, it's, it's a fascinating um, and I don't have time to, to get into all of the, all of the implications all, all through Scripture and also in present-day church culture to expound the significance of that. But they're very, very strong words. It reminds me, it's a very similar message that the Apostle Paul has in Romans chapter 11. He says, I'm going to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and I'm going to bring them to Christ. Why? So that the Jews will become so jealous of the fact that salvation has come to the Gentiles that they also will come to Christ. But the message is the same. If you, if you obey the law, all, all, all of the practices of the Old Testament, all of those things that went on in the synagogue, if you, if you take those and hold on to them and not follow Jesus, you're worshiping Satan. You're lying in that synagogue. And so three simple points that I, I think summarize what are those, what are those covenant dealings? What are, what are those things that the, that the Jews put their hope in, their understanding of what God had given to them through all of the prophets that now belong to the church in Christ? And those three words are privilege, Dominion and safety. Okay, three simple words I'm going to go through in the next few minutes. Privilege, dominion, and safety. Privilege is the first one. To be made a pillar in God's temple. 
In other words, to be brought into the place where God's presence is manifested and say that nobody will ever be able to take you out of there. This is exactly how the Jews understood them in this place of privilege. Worshiping Jesus, the true Messiah, the son of David, he possesses the keys. He possesses the keys and, and opens that door into God's kingdom. into his temple, the place of his glory. And only the true Messiah can do this. Only he can open that door. Only he possesses the keys to do that. And only those who worship Jesus as the true and holy one have that door opened to them. It's possible that the Jews were persecuting the Christians by locking them out of the synagogue, just locking the door. And it was part of uh, early Christian practice. We know that from the book of Acts, that they would often worship in the, in the precincts of, of the synagogue. And it could be that the Jews were, were, were persecuting the Christians, saying, no, you have, you have no part of this, you have no part of God, You're, you, um, and, and, and locked them out. And so this is a message of role reversal. I give the keys to you. I give access to you. Because you worship Jesus. You know, how we worship matters. What we worship matters. The message to the Jews in the synagogue isn't simply, yeah, you're okay. You continue on with your sacrifices. You continue telling people that you have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God. That's okay. You know, we'll worship this way, you worship that way. It reminds me of the words again in Romans chapter 11 where the Apostle Paul says, consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Because there's the very stern words here about a synagogue who refused to acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. It's the same message that the Gospel of John has in chapter 14, verse 6 that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Those of you who know what the word pluralism is, it doesn't work. Worship isn't some magical stick that because we participate in, in practices of worship, that it gives us access to the divine. Worshiping Jesus brings us into the presence of the divine. Tremendous privilege, but also a very clear message about the necessity of worshiping the holy, the true one who possesses the keys. The second one is dominion. This is something that, that Israel understood about themselves. It is something, one of, one of the uh, understandings that they had about God's very unique and specific dealings with them as a people, that they would have dominion on the earth. Isaiah chapter 45 is, is an example of, of uh, I mentioned the, the dreams of Joseph, but through the prophets as well, uh, there is the understanding that, that God would make the nations bow down to Israel. Isaiah 45, 14 says, thus says the Lord, that the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and all the Sabaeans, men of stature, they shall come to you 
and they shall be yours, and they shall follow you. They shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God beside him. Genesis or Isaiah chapter 49 says, With their faces, speaking of the Gentiles, Genesis 49, verse 23, sorry, Isaiah 49, With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you, and they shall lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord, and those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. So this, this is the background for these words that says, I will make them come, and they will bow down before you, before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. This is reversal. The simple message of, of verse 9 of that bowing down is, is a tremendous message of God's dominion in his kingdom. The message is this, is that, that those who hate you will want to join you. It, it's an incredible message of encouragement and not, not, not some sort of, of strange d- dominion thing that, that, that gives us an arrogant superiority in the world, but a, a tremendous hope in the power of the gospel to reach people who are currently at our adversaries and antagonistic and against the gospel, just as the synagogue was against the church. He says, they will come to you and they will acknowledge that God has loved you. And they will be converted. They will acknowledge that Jesus is the king. And it was the church, though, with, with little strength. John sees them. The Lord speaks to them and says, you have little power. It's difficult, perhaps, for us to comprehend. More and more so in our culture, we're getting a taste of what it may be like in this country of Canada in the future. But Christians were by far the minority. The vast majority of people were not Christians. They They were not believers. They had no social power. They had no economic power. They had no political power. And this also relates to the open door. That I have opened a door. And the Apostle Paul used the same vocabulary. In Colossians chapter 4, he says, pray for me. Pray for me that I would have an open door for the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he he tells the Corinthians, he says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus because the Lord has given me an open door here. And there is adversaries, adversity, those who oppose us here. So the Apostle Paul was saying the same thing, that, that in the midst of this place here in Ephesus, where, where there is much opposition, the Lord has given me an open door. And that is the message for encouragement to the church. That, that it's not about our particular giftings. It's not about our management. It's not about our leadership. It's not about our skills. It's about a sovereign Lord who is the true Messiah who says, I open doors. And it's what helps us endure. Don't be discouraged. The doors that God opens, no one can shut. The third one is safety. Preservation. 
the Lord promises their, their safety in a time of, of trial. Verse 10 says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour. Interesting word, the word hour. From the hour of trial. Also an interesting word. An hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, you know what people do when they, when they read a text like that? The first thing that comes to their mind is they go, hmm, I wonder when that's going to be. And they start going through the scriptures, trying to figure it out. What, 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 when's this hour? What, what, what's this going to be all about? And they, 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 they treat the book of Revelation as, this, as if it was some kind of crystal ball that allows us to see things and and know things about the future. And, and it, the disciples had the same craving. Even when, when Jesus ascended into heaven in the first uh, chapter of Acts, they said again to him, are, is it now, Jesus? Now? Now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to us now? Just an absolute, absolute unsatiable appetite to know particulars about times and dates. And Jesus said, no, go home and pray. not for you to know and, and, and there, 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 there's nothing revealed in particular about any information that isn't also commonly known in the scripture it's the same vocabulary that Jesus used in John chapter 17 when he prayed for his disciples he said Lord I prayed to his heavenly father in John 17 says Lord, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world. I pray that you would keep them. Keep them. Same words. I pray that you would keep them in the world. I pray that you would keep them safe. The word hour is interesting. The, 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 the book of Revelation often will, will use things like, like numbers and, and uh, metaphorical language, like Jesus is a lamb. Nobody really believes Jesus is a lamb. Uh, but it, it'll use... Uh, language that is metaphorical in its in its um, understanding, and I, I believe that's also the understanding of of an hour, an hour of trial. The point of the hour is that not only is, is it, it will it be a short time, but that God knows the length of it. God speaks about times in the Book of Revelation because He is the one who determines the times. When He says an hour of trial, He's saying. I know it's an hour because I'm the one who makes it an hour. I am the one who controls it. I am the one who determines that it will be an hour. It means that I am not a spectator. It means that I am the one who is is accomplishing my purposes in it. When God sets the time, He means that it is under His control. And there is a purpose for that hour. It says to, to try or a trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. It is a trial of distinguishing. What will come in this trial will be a distinguishing between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. That's the purpose of the trial. The word earth dwellers. Can I, 
I'm going to go, I'm going to go underground here just for a second. Okay. Hold your breath. All right. If you don't care about any of this stuff, just, just, I don't know. Look at, look at the sky for a second. I'm going to come back. All right. Earth dwellers to try those who dwell on the earth. It's the first mention of a little phrase that is used about 10 different times through the book of Revelation. As I said earlier, it's plucked out of Psalm 10. And what it refers to is not simply people who live on the earth. It's a technical term in the book of Revelation to describe those who not only dwell on the earth, but those who find their identity, their security, and their love on the earth. They're earthbound. They're earth dwellers. They're dwellers of the earth. And later on in the book, we'll discover that they're also that they're also, also beast followers, that they, they, they worship the, the, the images of the beast, and they're connected to the harlot and that, that, that phrase is used all through the scriptures. And that's what the purpose of the trial is, is to distinguish, it comes on, 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 on the whole earth, to distinguish those that are earth dwellers, as opposed to those who are other vocabulary in the book of Revelation, those who are saints, those who are, are lamb followers. And the biggest trial, okay, I'm going to come back now. All right, that, that's over with. That's just a little technical thing that I find extremely interesting and helpful about the book of Revelation. But this trial that comes upon the earth, the greatest trial that the earth will ever know will be a trial of deception. And that is what will distinguish the earth dwellers from the saints, the beast followers from the lamb followers. Those who recognize the holy and true one, Jesus as the true Messiah. And Satan's deceptions will become so strong on the earth. We'll learn this in chapter 12 and chapter 13, that Satan's deceptions will become so strong on the earth that people will worship in his forms of worship, thinking that they're worshiping God. This is what the Apostle John says, I'll keep you safe. This is the fulfillment of the prayer of Jesus in John chapter 17. I will keep you safe. This is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies like, like Isaiah chapter 91. Do you remember I preached from Isaiah? Some of you remember from, sorry, from the Psalm 91 a few weeks ago. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, that is the, the works of deception. And from the deadly pestilence, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. This is the great hope of the church. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 43. I hope you know these words. It's so, such encouraging. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, and they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God. See, this is, this is the covenant dealings that God had with his people Israel that the synagogue thought that they were attached to. All of this stuff is ours. All of this privilege, all of this dominion, all of this safety and preservation. And, and, and John says, no, actually, it belongs to you, church. Jesus says in John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one shall snatch them out of my hand. You know, you feel like you have little power sometimes. And it's not a great feeling. But it is a great feeling to know covenant dealings. 
the promises of God. I have, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I will keep you safe. I will keep you in the hour of trial. Amazing words. Okay. So what? I'll finish with this. This is my conclusion. The message is an affirmation of identity. I hope you get that. I hope you've understood that already, but let me just make it plain as I, as I come to a conclusion. It's an affirmation of identity. You see, this is what encourages a church that is faithful to keep on being faithful. It's not your faithfulness that enables you to keep on being faithful. It's your grasping of your identity that enables you to keep on being faithful. Identity matters. It mattered to Israel. It mattered a whole bunch to Israel, who they were in in, in the presence of God. And it matters to the church. We belong to God. Grasping the blessing is fundamental to perseverance. You know, we all know people that that have come to faith and like the parable of the soils and and they don't persevere. They get lost in their work and they get lost in, in temptation and all different kinds of things and And they don't endure in faithfulness to Christ. It's when we grasp our identity. I hope you, please, please get this. It's when we, we, when we grasp our identity that the world loses its power over us. Do you understand that? That's the well from which Christians draw the strength by God's Spirit. It's our identity. All of God's covenant dealings with us. And the reason that the world sometimes has its way with us, such as it it will have its way with so many people through the book of Revelation who will become beast followers because their identity, their security, and their love are in this world. There are earth dwellers. And so the world, earth, has the ability to make them fear because that's where their identity is. The the earth has the ability to seduce them because that's where their wealth is. But the world loses its power. It can no longer threaten us. It can no longer manipulate us when we grasp our identity in God. The new name that is promised here in this letter. I will give you a new name. You belong to me. Ascribing identity puts somebody in the driver's seat. That's what it does. Everybody does this. We all do it. Ascribing identity to something puts that something in the driver's seat. Either it's God or it's the world. And I remember when I first came to faith in Christ. This is what brought me. I thought to myself, I'd seen all the religion, I'd seen all the worship, I'd seen all the subculture, I'd seen all of the, heard all of the doctrine, but this is what took me. And this is what keeps me. 
That if it is possible through true faith in Jesus to belong to the living God, the maker of heaven and earth, then everything else doesn't matter. Everything else becomes hollow. Everything else becomes shallow. If I can belong to the living God. It's my daily bread that Jesus taught us to pray for. It's our identity. And I trust it will encourage us and help us to endure and persevere. Let's pray.